Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm uh, quietly sitting here today with Michael Garfield. Michael Garfield is a musician and a writer, a paleontologist, turned futurist performance philosopher. Michael Garfield's boundary-hopping, mind-expanding work maps the evolutionary landscape and our place in it. Co-host of the Future Fossil podcast, regular contributor to Reality Sandwich and Metapsychosis Journal, and frequent guest on podcasts such as Third Eye Drops, Psychedelic Salon, an expanding mind, Michael writes and speak about and from the intersections of emerging planetary consciousness, accelerating technoculture, visionary art, and a cosmic vision that transcends our evolutionary narratives entirely. Welcome, Michael. I would say you're the second or third, uh, I have to count Barbara Marks Hubbard and then Timothy Leary, second or third futurist performance philosopher. I would think that you had more of those in 500 plus episodes, <laughs> um, but that's pretty great. I'm, I'm glad to be standing in that, in that company. I'll take it. Good. Good. Actually, it's um, it's the futurist word that I want to bring forth at this moment. And I don't want to say because, because I, lately I found out something really interesting. Uh, because is the seed of victimhood. Can you relate to that? You mean the word because? The wor- using the word because. The word because. Using the, the seed. Because creates victimhood. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, so far as you ascribe a cause to an effect, you know, you're, you're slicing reality into a narrative vector, right? And then, in order to do so, you're you're cutting away all of the other narrative threads that contribute to an event, and so you lose um, that. In and itself, is a very violent deed, right? So, so it it does it does create a victim and 
and uh, project a perpetrator, I guess. Yeah. But so you're saying that this is this uh, is, implicated in the, the future is the, not because. Oh yeah, implicated in the in the study of futures and and talking about trends and that such thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well my my stance with the future and what I'm I'm currently playing with a series of of short pieces I'm going to collect into a book about how to live in the future and it's just going to be uh, performative. It's going to be, you know, showing people little uh, leading them through uh, a nonlinear thought, you know, and then moving on to another nonlinear thought that that point past the the dialectical constructions of language. And in in each of these, like the it seems like what's coming out again and again is the point that the future is like all the things that we're looking forward to in the future are happening in a boundary around this moment that there's that I, I, you know, if you start by just as a, like a a conceptual tool, like spatializing time, you know, and having everything happen at once, but then having it, having it happen relative to other moments, you know, if you lay that all out, the, whole, the crystal of like all possible pasts and futures uh, co-occurring. Co-occurring. Yeah, then, then you've got, then you can talk about there being uh, horizons within that space. Maybe horizons determined by the resonance between moments or like simply our ability to imagine and that uh, those... I mean, these are these are uh, like symmetry breaks along which you get something that looks like a flow of cause and effect. You know, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm playing with. But be right not now. fooled. Be not <laughs> fooled by what people love to talk about the law of cause and effect. Mm. For in my view, there is no cause and effect. You just have to look at one of your paintings, which I saw, and this image is not an image of cause and effect, is it? When you start to paint, the image doesn't come forth as a cause and effect, does it? Well, uh, I mean, when I'm painting, I tend to work through... Uh, essentially, you know, yeah, as the instrument of an unfolding algorithm. So in that sense, there is a sort of uh, unspooling script to it, you know, that can be uh, uh, interpreted or expressed in in terms of like a, a program or translation or, you know, that kind of thing. But, but of course, anytime anybody's talking about their inspiration, then it's always 
it's always their inspiration. And like everyone always says, oh, it comes from beyond me. It comes from beyond me, but that's because they're, uh, they're locating the me inside of this uh, event horizon or this bubble, you know, whereas like if you, if you consider yourself open, if I'm an open system, you know, if I don't actually have a distinct, uh, a clear boundary with my surroundings, and that's true in a lot of ways, then when we talk about what inspires me or who's responsible for the thing, then it's really where do you decide to collapse your observation of the complexity, the actual complexity of the situation into a narrative crystal. Like it's like it falls out of that simply being with it, right? And then we get out of, say, the that sort of visionary peak, and then out of that condenses stone tablets with rules on them and that kind of thing. You know, we 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 congeal into it's like it's like, it's like cooling lava. That's really how it feels to me. Is that the known world? is this island of congealed visionary experience. And that all of these things that we take for granted as normal, that were once an imaginative insight, you know, I could put these pieces of wood together and make a table that isn't just a rock, you know. These things, they they all have, were once born molten out of, the uh, forehead of Zeus or whatever, you know? And so you just, it's not, um, that volcano is always going, but we, um, we narrativize creation. We talk about creation as having occurred at some point in the past, you know, which is a little, a little strange, but uh, understandable. Well, our voices are happening in this moment from the tree, from the raven, from the chair, and they would have a completely different resonance if all of these existings were different around us. And generosity might be to re to do what we are doing, to remembering this all the time. So for you, how does not accepting or like cruising above, rather, this notion of cause and effect, it, it would be a mistake to say how do you how do you find that causing some kind of effect in your right, life right. You, have you know but but there's there's a like a warp perhaps in the field of your experience and your behavior that you can observe in correlation 
with this. That's the thing about this is the the the, the practice of science uh, when you take time to be a multi-dimensional, multi-directional thing that that science has to let go of the cause and effect, but it it still deals with correlations and then the like trends or like the uh, uh, polarities in those correlations, you know, so like entropy, we observe entropy. It's in a, it's in a, we did, we've defined entropy by describing it within a closed system. We don't really have closed systems. So really in, in nature, entropy is really more kind of like a Doppler shift thing. It's, it's a polarization of something that we can see from a different angle as the, an increase in order somewhere else. Right. So, yes. so at any rate, the, the, we, the process is that we don't get to, we don't get to say this thing causes this thing anymore, but we still get to say, well, these things occur together. So what occurs for you together with, in your life, like what, what are the, what are the ethical or psychological, personal things that come up in association with no longer being caused by or causing in any kind of formal ultimate sense? Well, I've been thinking about what is it that makes people burst out laughing? when you speak, when one speaks. And as far as I understand, it's the unexpected. So if, the cause, if there's cause and effect, I mean, I'm, I'm always trying to look at fun. I mean, it's got to be fun. If, if, if it's not fun, I'm going to kill myself because <laughs> maybe it's going to be more fun somewhere else. <laughs> That's just the bottom line for me. So what is fun? I want to ask you that. For me, fun is many things, but at this moment it would be the unexpected. Mm. And if there's cause and effect, then it's expected, isn't it? So what's fun? What's fun, Michael? What's fun? You can You can reconcile cause and effect with the unexpected though because our ability to determine cause and effect is only as good as our ability to perceive the interactions of things and so that means that our notions of causality are entirely dependent upon and emergent from our senses and our thinking. And so there's a resolution there. We, we, we can't see beneath certain thresholds or beyond certain thresholds. And so there's the Baker's transformation in math. You know, this is the chaos theory thing that they, they talk about. If you take a piece of dough and you mark it with ink, and you fold it, you stretch it in twice as long as it is, you fold it in half, you stretch it twice as long as it is, you fold it in half. The spot where you originally marked it, your measurement of where that spot is, 
that measurement error in that initial measurement is doubling every time you fold it, the piece of dough. So every, every iteration of that algorithm is doubling your margin of error, which is why meteorologists have such a hard time agreeing on what the weather will be. Yes. Cause it's this, it's, there's always this missing and people say that this is uh, pop culture has misinterpreted this as the butterfly effect, meaning that small things have great consequences that it's the unexpected little mouse under the foot of the elephant that's going to screw up the whole circus. But it's not, it's not exactly that. It's not really that it's placing the agency or the authority back into the hands of the tiny people. You know, we don't get, it's not really an underdog empowering cosmic narrative. What it's, what it is, is saying that, that we can reconcile the experience of our of our choice with our observation of one damn thing after another causing one you know the next thing and that that's that those things meet at at the unexpected that the unexpected is the irrational number the random sequence of digits and being just that which we cannot anticipate, you know, that it's built into the math that there is this, this horizon line and that that horizon line demarcates where the, the band of the Mobius strip twists and you get, uh, you push far enough into an exploration of free will and you hit the bedrock of fate, or if you push far enough into, into the, into the inquiry of fate, you realize that there's always surprise. There's always this opportunity to rediscover choice, which is what I'm going through in my life right now. And that right now that is fun for me realizing after years of, deconstructing myself as the product of an ecosystem to remember that I still as a subject that is the product of this transpersonal matrix of associations have nonetheless been shaped by that wisdom to exert and experience an agency. So the faith that's that's the inlet where my faith is able to return to this and say hey clearly this is as it should be and therefore the experience of choice is not to be sniffed at you should you should celebrate it while you still have the mixed blessing of experiencing it you know so you're amused right now <laughs> yeah. i mean uh, and I want to ask, uh, do you experience difficulty with amusement? And it's a triple question. And what are some of the choices that you have discovered that have taken you out of 
your ordinary creativity or your past creativity. So you're asking me if there's... So first I'm if, asking you if you're amused right yeah, now. Yeah, yes, definitely. <laughs> and then you're asking if this is a state that I am... I find easy to yes, access. Yes, yes. And and then uh, how? Yeah. I, I, I keep that door open, and then maybe where I find myself struggling to keep the door open. Okay, so that'd be good. Yeah. So uh, usually, yes, because I recognize flexibility, or rather, I would say that the ability to to delight. In surprise is a measure of one's pliable nervous system. That if you can stay, if you can stay fresh, you can stay sharp, you can stay open to wonder and and again, like delight, but delight in the sense of it being a specific type of surprise that simply being amused by life, I think that's the laugh that Zen masters look for to prove, to determine that somebody gets the joke, you know? And, and so naturally, yeah, naturally I find myself flagging in that regard from time to time and find myself deeply unamused about certain things. I, I, think that my amusement as a strategy or like as a as an end the strategy to the end of amusement would be like i saw this guy in my college chemistry course who was deeply engrossed in what was going on with this this professor who was a terrible bore and incredibly intolerably unamusing for the other 900 of us in this class, but there's this guy up front who's at the edge of his seat. He's typing away at this notepad. He's, he's totally dedicated. He's laughing. He's following this guy pace by pace. And I think to myself, there has to be a way that I can get inside this guy's head and enjoy this class as much as he is because I'm missing all of that right now. I'm missing whatever he's got. You know, he clearly thinks this teacher is a total hoot. And I wish I did. I would rather be enjoying myself than attached to my distaste for this dude. You know? (laughs) (laughs) So there's like a bit of method acting involved in that. And I've taken it upon myself now, uh, I do this listening to the radio because the radio is one of those last few places where there exists a space of, I would say, the light of our attention remains only ever peripherally upon it. And so we want something playing. We want someone talking or some music going on, but we don't want to have to pay attention necessarily. And so there's, there's an interesting uh, field or terrain of exploration in 
allowing myself to enjoy, to deeply enjoy the music of someone else's preferences, like to turn on a radio station that I despise and sit there with it and really appreciate the fact that this station's existence is the symptom of millions and millions of people loving this music. It's the symptom, yeah. You know, and so therefore, I have this whole new annex of the mind palace. It's we're like the you know, if in the tantric sense of 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 expansion or union with everything. I wrote an article several years ago about the desert Island playlist that everyone's always talking about, which 10 albums would you bring with you uh-huh. to your, if you were cast adrift and washed up on an Island, oh. it's like what 10 albums are in your suitcase. And I, and I thought uh, once upon a time that it was just totally absurd that we were limited to 10 albums and this was before, by the way, this is before Spotify or the, you know, the Celestial Jukebox. This is also before, uh, two years before that, when I was, I was working for uh, this website that was trying to accomplish what Spotify ultimately accomplished mm-hmm. and could not get two of the four major uh, record labels in the United States to agree to a streaming platform. Because even then, it was this thing about ownership over access. Mm. You know, that people needed the files. They needed to sell the discs. They needed a thing, you know. And so people couldn't wrap their heads around this. And so at that time, I was writing articles for the blog of this website that that apparently never made it to these, these poor record industry executives that lost two years of profits on this. But um, this notion of ownership and access with respect to ideas and with respect to people and like how we're, this is a tangent, I guess, but we are, we're getting, as we become more and more digital as a society, the correlated social psychological shift seems to be one of regarding ourselves as distributed in that way or reproducible in that way or not having the same kind of boundaries, the same kind of pastoral boundaries, the same kind of fence lines and uh, property deeds and this kind of thing when it comes to elements of our personal psychologies that we share much more freely now uh, and uh, within relationship. And so at any rate, the the uh, article was on the desert island playlist and tantra and this notion of expanding to include every song in the world be like i would have every song in the world on my desert island playlist they are all my favorite song every sound i hear is my favorite sound and that's you know that's very much in line with the uh you, by embracing all of the things, you you asymptotically approach embracing that the sound behind the sound. You know the thing that isn't the thing that is 
only casting a shadow as all of those things. So, and then it's not really, you know, or you can make the mistake of thinking that it's an embrace of everything in the material world and eat yourself to death and, you know, die at 500 pounds or whatever. Oh. But I mean, you know, because yeah. that's a mistake that people make yeah, you sometimes. Know, I, 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 see, I see. Well, for me, the radio station, the 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 ten albums that I'd like to take to the desert island, would be a combination of all the music that I that reaches my heart, but put together in a different way than it would be on any album. So I would like to listen to... I I, I wouldn't want to take any music with me. (laughs) I would want to listen to the music of the imagination of everything I can perceive. Yeah. Uh, So tell me, tell me, tell me, what is the wildest piece of imagination you can come up with right now that would be the combination of everything that's inside and around Michael Garfield. <laughs> I mean, you do it with your music, you do it with your painting. Certainly, certainly. I don't know. I mean, Give right... me an orgasm, you know? Oh, that's gosh. <laughs> well, what you're talking about, that that uh, access. So a lot of things have been coming up in my field lately yes. about there's this balance, as I think we were talking about before we started actually recording the balance of the, 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 the rainbow. When we talk about the rainbow as like the full spectrum, mm. it's really only one octave of this, vastly invisible electromagnetic spectrum, which is itself only one axis of this vibratory universe. And so there is, in fact, a kind of aramonic or limiting... There's a trap, a potential trap in identification with the light because the light is only this one tiny little piece of things. Right. And so in, in thinking about that, my buddy, uh, Mitch Mignano, you know, um, our our friend here in Santa Fe, he's been turning me on to some really excellent vinyl records at his house. And, you know, to, to treat listening as a sacrament. Yes. You know, to treat it as a sacrament. I had the thought last night that I would, I have no doubt in my mind that I would rather be struck blind than deaf because we can only see one octave, but we can hear several, many octaves and feel many more. You know, that hearing actually has this bleed into touch and that it's not it's that those of us who hear who have trained our our brains to hear almost exclusively through our ears forget this but that deaf people actually still hear quite a bit through the rest of their body mm-hmm. and that it it's it can be um 
you know, it can still even be processed by the auditory cortex in that same way. And so there's, there's this, in the same way that smell and tastes, they don't have a clear boundary, you know, that they're, they're so deeply interrelated that touch and sound are, and that this whole thing about moving back into an auditory culture, the McLuhan thing, uh, is, it seems maybe a little wrong right now because so much of the media that we share with one another at this moment of the internet is video. It's all visual stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you look at like, I don't know if you, did you see her, the film yeah, her sure. and it, how his interaction with the artificial intelligence sure. was all conducted through the earbud. Yes, yes. And that, that image actually of, a world where we're no longer, you know, a world that's somewhat more adapted to human beings and how we are historically, because we were not adapted to these, you know, the, 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 the LED screen is for the eye what the, the candy aisle of the convenience store is for the gastrointestinal system, you know, and it's like we know that we're creating macular degeneration issues with screens and yet we're we're about to wrap everything that we make in a screen at the same time and so we're you know we're really riding this knife edge of uh coevolution like ergonomic coevolution you know so that we're not losing ourselves completely to this 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 uh tango but at any rate what really what really gets me off is the thought of the new language emerging from human beings being a musical language being a language that is communicated through auditory and visual synesthetic gesture that is communicated through like a gestural computing interface that conveys paired sound and image, and that is uh, Im- that the the video or the the image part of it is Im- holographic and immersive in the same way that the sound is, and so we're we're communicating to one another through dance, but dance that magnifies that projects outward into environments. And into we were casting one another into our our imaginative expressions directly through our whole body engagement of uh, a dis, you know a distributed computing platform that may not even be it may just be completely woven into our environments at that point it may not be something that we we're not holding it we're not even wearing it. You know, it's just, we're, it's, cert, it's certainly not in us, although it probably will be in us, um, let's face it. But it's it, this, this notion of there being finally um, the, like, to put it in real concrete terms, to be able to like play the piano mm-hmm. and then the piano, you see like a digital audio workstation interface like uh, Logic or Pro Tools, Ableton Live. 
you see a session recording, a multi-track session recording, automatically uh, laid out in the space before you. And rather than having to like look down at a screen, you can just reach up and move the, the various recording stems that you've created, that you're, that you're currently creating. You can move them around and remix them and, and, and apply effects to them and, and share that, that sculptural space with other performers who can go in then with you and play the entire play essentially play the studio as an instrument, like with all of you having more sort of discrete instruments. So the studio is this, the studio itself is this fractal thing where you have individual performers playing instruments that are and, and creating submixes that are part of this larger thing. But it's, it's, uh, you know, if you look at like every step of the evolution of human communication, then there's this this deepening syntactic enfoldment of the word getting swallowed by the sentence, getting swallowed by the more complex like thetical paragraph kind of idea, swallowed by the the narrative structures, swallowed by you know more complex narrative structures swallowed by you know, like like literary deconstruct so you get to this thing where the same thing is going on with music where all of the old instruments we played one note at a time and then we play a whole symphony and then each person in the symphony like Jim Morrison was talking about this back in the day there's a famous clip of him going around talking about how l- just having massive racks of tapes that one person could play the entire band. And then he totally predicted what we have, you know, the, the, the DJ scene, you know, he preempted it by about 15 or 20 years. And uh, so, yeah, just this thought that it's, it'll, it'll hop the rails. It'll move beyond just the music that we can project out of the speakers, but the the holographic audio and the holographic image that we are able to project into our environments and around one another in an immersive way. And that that'll become the currency of discourse, that that will become a way of making a point. It won't just be an artistic performance, but mm-hmm. it'll be the actual vehicle for our communications. Yeah, like the, the like the way that pe- there are virtual reality journalists now who say, "Oh, you know, this is what it was like to be at the scene of that police beating," you know, and they put you in the helmet and they put you in that space, but that the direct transduction of imaginative experience will become the unit of communication that we will no longer really be that our signs and our symbols will have graduated, have matured to become this entire uh, world or this entire visionscape that you, Im- you place the, the audience inside, you know? So that's what's, that's what's my, yeah. that's my, uh, my thing I'm excited about. Well, sometimes I imagine, uh, a story about the time after I die. And uh, 
I'm quite amused by that. I imagine that my senses continue, but I no longer have a body. And then I go into imagining that reincarnation would be that it, that my senses would create another body. So every every hearing, the sense of hearing, smell, the the I would see, but I wouldn't see through. This is a game mm. that started when I was one day when I was on psychedelics, and I. I I was terribly interested to play at what it would be that my senses would create my body instead of perhaps my body mm. being my senses. So um, I somehow what you were describing this uh, this way of communicating and being able to uh, play a symphony. Of vibration felt somewhat like this disembodied sensing, but yet not being able to stay in the disembodied sensing because it creates something and it would be another body. Mm. Um, how would I approach the matter? of nature with you, what question would I ask you about nature and, well, simply what does nature mean to you? What does, what does the planet mean to you in the, in the mystery of being? So there's this sense in which Nature, as I understand it, is a concept necessary to the modern mind in order to differentiate a rational actor from an environment upon which he could act as an agent, an, you know, an author of his destiny. That nature was a place from which he had sliced himself and over which he would exert his will. And I don't regard nature in that way. I regard, uh, I mean, to the extent that the concept re remains useful, as I think it will for some time, and I think it's a mistake to just simply, as I have in the past, said nature is, doesn't exist that cult you know in the same way that culture doesn't exist that we are complete wilderness you know that we're not we're not anything other than and that my buddy when she got upset at light pollution over the San Francisco bay i just ha laughed at her cuz of course, that's just more of the Earth converting solar radiation into thermal radiation that goes on all the time. That's been going on for four billion years. Nothing new here, you know. That's that's the the course of things. Um, 
So how does that affect your sensuality, though? Uh, we'll see. Okay, so so uh, I think though that there is there's a deeper way that we can discuss nature to mean the the like the relative evolutionary and ecological contexts within which we are awakening together and i think that like there's there's a sense in which you know we can still talk about the the wisdom or intelligence of nature or we can uh we can point to design in nature designoid phenomena the uh, products of the evolutionary process that we can imitate in our you know in engineering mm-hmm. you know bio, the whole bio. practice of biomimicry yep and we can say, oh, we can look to nature for inspiration. And that can still mean something. Um, because we do have this, this sense in which even though you can sit in a chrome right angle chair and that's a chair and that's a natural thing and that's a function of the geological processes of earth, or you can sit on a totally cozy love seat beanbag thing and have a a completely different relationship with your spine. And that's every bit as natural and every bit as unnatural in the one sense. Right. But then on the other sense, it's definitely more, well adapted to the f- the physiology that we've inherited, so it's f- it's also fair to say that that's a more natural s- f- seating, you know, that the squat toilet is a more natural toilet than the seated toilet, that the the water birth is a more natural birth than a an, a, a supine hospital birth, hmm. you know, that the the regular inclusion of trace amounts of psychedelics in the diet appears to be uh, part of the paleolithic diet and seems to be involved in a really complex uh, system of neurotransmitters and that it is that it's an essential nutrient missing from the modern diet and that the non-psychedelic human life is in some sense unnatural you know so we can make all of these claims but at the same time, we can, we ha- you know, I do it from a place of admitting that you, you walk into the center of Times Square and you are as deep in the wilderness as you will ever get. And, you know, then we can have that, that conversation, you know, that you got to hold both of those, I think. End rant. What about you? Life without ergot. <laughs> I don't believe in it. If it's not going to be in my bread, I'm going to find a supplier. <laughs> well, actually, at this point, uh, I would like to answer, but we will... We will do that in uh, okay. our next conversation. I want to ask you, uh, 
what do you think and feel it is to be a man in 2016, in my view, a young man in 2016? That's very important because I think we're living, I hope we're living through the, um, the last green vomit of the patriarchy. And so... Here you come, you guys. <laughs> to be a man mm-hmm. in this day. To be a human being with, uh, with those kind of genitals. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because we could, because we could, because as I have learned, and this is important, this is an important part of being, being a person. In this day and age, that you have your psychological gender identity. You have the way that you express yourself in your physical form and fashion. Mm -hmm. You have your biological sex. You know, these are three very different things. Very different things. Yeah. So... Bravo. Exactly. So I could could look like a duck and and talk like a duck... And, and not be a duck. And be a goose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what I feel I am. I think that's a big part of what it means to be a man in this age. Although, I, as usual, I think I'm getting ahead of myself and everyone else. I spent uh, a very long time trying to trying to evoke, invoke, draw out, explore my inner feminine, I think, before I had really done the foundational work of getting to know myself in that sort of pre-modern basic sense as a a male. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the same way that I have found myself practicing some really complicated master's level techniques on the guitar before I had learned how to play guitar in the basics way, uh-huh. you know? Okay. So there's a mercury retrograde in my natal chart. And so I tend to, to set my course for the, the wide outcome. And then it takes me a very long time. And so things appear to go backwards. And in that respect, um, I can say that I think I'm a useful predictor that my attitudes on gender are probably not uh, respective of or uh, they, they do not exemplify the average person's this in this day and age. But I think that it is increasingly the case that that people have a much more fluid relationship to gender and that ultimately this seems to be headed to a place where, like you said about like this being the last green vomit moment, you know that the or uh, the sunset effect. I think <laughs> is like I think McLuhan called it that. I, I forget who called it that, but that there's that that final thrash. Yes. And that final thrash right now in the war of the sexes, before we be begin to rewrite our own genetic scripts before we're actually playing with our own anatomies as the medium of creative expression, which will be the case within 
a hundred years at, at the most conservative estimate. You know, yeah, I mean, that's your 50 years. I will be surprised if there are not people with wings and gills 50 uh-huh. years, you know, so <laughs> I, I try not to get into like the outright prophecy, but come on, like, this is what we're looking at here. Uh, this is what we have now with this, the rapid and unprecedented, the amusing discovery of CRISPR and Cas9 gene editing technologies, or rather that these systems existed in the body already and that we technologized them. Again, getting into that issue of where, what, what is nature to, to begin with. So, um, how did our senses create the body rather than our body? The yeah. senses. Well, the sen- it's gonna it's gonna be that's a, a, a much more nuanced question when that's literally not when the bardo has spilled over into waking life, when we're no longer just uh, experiencing that senses create the body when one body dies and another body is embryogenetically morphized or what but when we are waking up and saying okay what body am i going to print today you know when it's like i'm i'm uh you know probably sleeping in a bank of servers you know that's that's the weird thing about this whole transhuman shenanigan is that it veers very quickly into the vampire lore you know this whole thing about the shiny vampire like the rainbow body the transformation the transmutation of the flesh here's an here's a you know a perfect immortal being that can tr- change its shape that you know but but at the at the cost of what you know, at the cost of its soul, and it must sleep in the earth of its homeland. That whole thing about Dracula sleeping in his own dirt, having to bring a ship of his own dirt across to London, I think is very telling, in or, or like prescient in the way that we, the transhuman or the posthuman, can access the the full potential of all of these these uh, shamanic realities you know can 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 transform into the wolf or the raven or the you know whatever but at the same time you you're stuck in your the the soil of your homeland you know literally the you know the what at that point might not look like a server farm at all it might look like a, a a rhizome of nano assembling particles in the soil of a forest working in conjunction with the existing Microrhizal network and and uh, you know forest what they call like the wood wide web you know that we might actually get like a backup human derived internet running running like in the soil parallel to all that stuff and at that point you know it's like well okay you know there's no there's no real difference here between Ray Kurzweil and Dracula you know. Okay. <laughs> a word comes up, which is composting. But, uh, we've, we, we have to come around here. And I want to know how these words compost into music for you. Mm. And, and yes, I am extremely amused. <laughs> Well, 
last night at my friend Mitch's place, mm-hmm. I listened to this old radio program by Glenn Gould. I didn't know that he had a radio program. Did you? No, I didn't grow up here. He, you know, he's the the pianist yes, who did all the, yes. the, the Bach stuff. But he had an, this program where he mixed together interviews with, at the time, Walter Carlos, who had just really switched on Bach. And then there was mm-hmm. also another uh, a French scholar or priest or something. It, the program was, was delivered in a very kind of rapid-fire format, so it's mm-hmm. hard to say. But it was mixed together, even, even back in, it must have been like 1968 when this was produced. And even then, they were having this extremely high-level conversation, very similar to the one that we're having today, about the relationship between humans and technology and divinity and the potential of technology to liberate the human imagination and... Uh, and yet, you know, what do we leave behind in the process of concretizing our imaginative potential? And the whole thing was mixed together in this way that the voices, in addition to the the synthesizer performance of Bach music that was woven into it, were all brought together in the mind of the composer or conductor, Glenn Gould, like as the radio director, this predates radio lab by like 40 or 50 years. This, this skillful interweaving of music and conversation together. And I think that in the sense that, that I regard music as a, a neurophysiologically identical like the, all the parts of the brain associated with music are associated with language. They seem to have evolved together. They're really two things that have never really been truly separate in in society. Even in like, if you look at like oppressive religions of the book, sacred text religions that ban music, you know, it's the word banning. It's still it's 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 one side of it the the thing banning the other side of the same thing. It's mm-hmm. overexpression and underexpression of, you know, one self-regulatory uh, cybernetic system. So, like, we, we compost this stuff, and the, the, the words end up, like, hopefully, in 100 years from now, somebody gets a hold of this recording and throws it into a synthesizer and turns, pitch shifts our, our language and folds it up into a symphony with a hundred other conversations and gives it to somebody as a bouquet to ask them out on a date. And that person says, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you a very funny story. Um, One of the, one of the men I knew while I was with Timothy had a Moog synthesizer. And so that was 1973. And we did quite a few experiments taking LSD and playing with the Moog. And uh, that really stretched, undulated, and permanently permed our minds. (laughs) (laughs) And this guy um, committed suicide in Spain, in the village where um, 
where I was, called Marbella. And um, always okay with the police to find him in a hotel, so it was death on the public, you know, on the voie publique, whatever they call that thing, when you die on the street. And uh, everything was fine for about a week and a half until the Guardia Civil, the very strict Spanish police, called me in. And they had found the Moog in this guy's room. And they thought it was the most dangerous thing in the universe. There was no way they could understand what it was. But yet they had made up a narrative about the fact that this had to be the most dangerous spy (laughs) to have a machine that made those sounds. And it was some of the most terrible five hours I ever spent interrogated by police because there was no way we could understand each other. None. So you remind me of that story. So, Michael, there's so much more to talk about, but um, um, this is a, the actually the length of one of my podcasts. So... I'm very, very happy you came here today, and um, I love language, so it's been so much fun to to play to play sound with you. Thank you. Likewise. <laughs> <laughs>